Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. I'm Scott Powell. <laughs> I'm Father Peter Massett. I didn't mean to cut you off. You really wanted to jump in there. Dude, no, it was kind of cool. It, it made me feel like we're we're on the uh, this train has left the station. It's leaving. We're still slowly pulling out. You can yeah, see yeah, it. like you are you are blocking the proceedings of this train. You are making everyone unhappy. Well, you guys, I have a shout out. Oh, tell me. I was uh, just at the uh, final vows Ooh. of Sister Hope oh. of the Morning Star. She got she has a new title. What a beautiful name! Yeah, Sister Hope of the Morning Star. I love it. And um, it was it was just it was just wonderful. Mm. So shout out to her. Yeah. Actually, one one of the terrifying things to me was that they've used our podcast as table reading at their meals. I know before. that stresses me. I out know. Profoundly. I'm like, oh, oh how gosh. do I even be on my best behavior? I to don't do even that? know. I know. So if this is if this is table listening for the sisters, oh. I'm I'm sorry that you, but you chose this. This you know, is your decision. Maybe if I thought more consciously of it more of the time, I, we'd do better. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Maybe that would maybe it would be helpful. I don't know. It's hard um, to say. But I uh, shout out. Um, I I met two uh, two guys from Toronto, mm. um, plus a priest from Toronto, Father Ryan. Father Ryan, what's up? Shout out to you. And then I met um, um, uh, both Chris Thomas and Savio Cyril Cocheri. Mm. And uh, and it was awesome. They did not know that they were going to meet me. And then we had dinner, and it was a ton of fun. And he wrote me a very nice thank you note. Which one? Um, Savio. Oh. And Chris. I mean, Chris was in on it. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so shout out to all the sisters of life. I just love you all. You are such a tremendous gift. I, uh, um, sister Michaela told me, tried to give me the like schema so that I could get into the right place to have a beautiful view of the liturgy. Did you make it? No, I missed and directly sat behind the the bishop's chair, which was like 10 feet tall. Oh, because you're on the altar. Yeah, you're on the altar. And so it was literally. Didn't you notice it there? Yeah, I mean, the, but once big. you're in the line, dude, there's just nothing oh, you you're going to do. The li- but... In the line you tried to, how yeah, can, yeah. on earth can you, wow, that's. Yeah, dude, I just we just shanked it, me and Father <laughs> Rocco. And then I... we were in like these kitty chairs, but it, it turned out oh. to be this profound grace because I got to sit next to like, literally is like 90 relics in a cabinet. And I Whoa. kept on trying to get the cabinet. I tried to pry the cabinet open with my hand. And um, at are the, you allowed to be no, doing that? No, come on. <laughs> I'm, I mean, this is Catholic. You know what I'm saying? You're just trying to get into the relic cabinet. This I just want to venerate. So, so I was like, I don't know where this podcast is going, but trying to get into the relic cabinet sounds like a great title. <laughs> I don't know where the podcast is heading thematically, but but dude, I could I could get it open just a little title. bit, and and it was amazing because there was like a cool breeze that came from the cabinet. So I just come to trying to like stick my fingers into the How cabinet. How big is the cabinet? I mean, it's a big cat. I mean, like bigger than me. Why is there a cool breeze coming? I don't know. The, all the saints are in there. Should we report this to the? I Vatican? think we should. All the saints are in there. <laughs> I'm just not funny. I don't know what. I'm <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, well, and, and so it was, it was actually really profound. So I got, I, all I wanted to do was actually venerate the relics. And so then during the litany of the saints, I got to put my hand on the cabinet and then I was just like praying over everybody. And it was, it was just, it was just really, it was really very special. Sounds like. And, but then I got <laughs> to actually see all the faces of the sisters as they made their vows because of where I was oh, seated. Oh, because you were facing them. Yeah. In. So I didn't have to look at the altar. Mm-hmm. I got to look at the sisters and then I had their parents directly behind them so I could oh. see their expressions in there. So it was like, wow. it was like so personal and and powerful. I mean, I'm like. That's beautiful. I'm really moved. I actually want to be holy again, which is nice. That is nice. Don't you like it? When, I like it when I actually am like. 
I really want holiness. I mean, I know the universal call, and I know that we're supposed to desire it, but you guys know. But there's something about being surrounded by holiness and seeing people make steps to holiness that you're like, oh, right. Right. Like, I need to do this. And I had my birthday this last week. And Happy birthday, Father thanks. Peter. And I had my 20th anniversary of my Bible study from college. Happy Bible study. Bible study. Bible vanursery. Vanursery. Yeah. Bible nursery. Happy Bible nursery. What the hell is a Bible nursery? That's where you grow Bibles off of trees. I don't even know. Those poor sisters sitting at the table <laughs> <laughs> trying to eat their breakfasts. <laughs> oh my gosh. Lord help us all. All right. It's the 19th Sunday of Ordinary Time, Father Peter. Also, no, if it were not 19th Sunday, it'd be St. Claire's feast day, who I have a devotion Francis to. Francis and Claire? Claire? Yeah. Francis and Claire, Claire. Annie or Lily's uh, confirmation saint. So St. Clair. So our first reading is from the Book of Wisdom, mm. chapter 18, verses 6 to 9. Be attentive. Uh, responsorial Psalm is Psalm 33, verse 1, then jumping to 12, then 18 through 19, and 20 through 22. And the response itself is from 12b. Or not to 12b. Uh, I see. You, I you, did you feel it coming? coming for miles. Our uh, Electoro de Segundo, second reading, the longer form from okay. Hebrews chapter 11, 1 to 2, jumping to 8 to 19. We skip a lot of people, yeah. but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that, it, so the reading, it's like the highlight reel of these faithful people from the Old Testament. It's like, Abraham was great. And then it jumps and he's like, all of these people had faith. You're like, wait, you just said one. That's where there's incongruity in the reading. Anyway, yeah, our gospel okay. is coming from Luke chapter 12, verse 32 through 48. We have two versions of long form, so we can cut it down. On, oh, I on didn't even notice. Hebrews and Luke. And so I didn't even notice. As you Luke. guys know, we are we believe in long form, um, long form podcasting. <laughs> we do like long. Okay, wisdom. Yes, be attentive. Yeah, like um so Okay, yeah, they they, they have courage and faith, and that's awesome. <laughs> Ooh. I have no idea what to do with this reading. Do you yeah. ever? I don't know I did, if you guys ever have uh, this, especially like the priests, brethren out there, mm. that you guys are looking at this and you're like, "What do I?" You're just like, "Okay, moving on." Like, because that's actually how I felt with this one. I just didn't feel like it. Like, I don't know why, but it water skied over my brain. It water skied over my brain. That's what um, Martin Luther thought when he took out all the Deuterocanonical books from the Old Testament. So you're in good company. So what you're saying is... <laughs> that was meant to be funnier, and you didn't laugh. And I was like trying to make it funny because I didn't find it funny. And then <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Dude, it's so funny because th there was somebody who, who was like, dude, I really hope that you laugh at my jokes because you're really mean to Scott. <gasps> I who mean, said that? Oh, was, you can't it say. Was, it was somebody we were meeting with in a development meeting. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Wow. And I was like, I was I'm like, okay, whoever that I is. Was like, I hey, was man, like, I'm cool. <laughs> I was, I'm cool. Father Peter loves me. I was like, we're totally friends, so I can say these totally <laughs> absurd direct things to you. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think we're friends. We are. We were friends before this podcast started. I don't know. It's we'll see how it like ends. It's like it's waning. So. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens by the end. All right. Um, so Wisdom is one of the Deuterocanonical books, which means, despite my bad joke, it is not in Protestant or, or Jewish canons. The reason why is that uh, Martin Luther was actually trying to just go back to the original sources. So anything yeah. that was not found in he directly in Hebrew. Well, what's not found in the Jewish canon. In the Jewish canon. And the is Jewish canons partially derived from what they had the original Hebrew versions of. Okay. Because they were liturgical texts. So, I mean, this is obviously a very Jewish book. But it's not found in the Jewish canon because the Jewish canon was meant for liturgical purpose. It's a very specific. It's like you know, we believe in the 
fathers of the church of, and stuff, but they're not in the Bible. They're, they're doing something kind of different. So simply the fact that our Jewish friends don't have these books in their Bibles doesn't mean that they're totally discounted and thrown out. They were just not seen as liturgically canonical. Does that make sense? Whereas Which is a it, much longer conversation. Whereas in our review of them as the church, um, when they were codifying this, particularly, what, what was the council? I can't remember. It was like, it wasn't. Well, a, Nicaea made it definitive, but it right. existed before that. Right. And, and and it had been being refined, but it's been specifically seen as totally divinely responsible. Totally well, di- divinely respired. respired. It's respired. Well, and the other thing is, is the Deuterocanonical books are found in what's called the Septuagint, which was the first major Greek translation of the whole Old Testament. Yep. And the reason that that's important, one of the reasons that's important for the church is that it's clear that Jesus, when he teaches, was using the Septuagint based on the, the wording he uses when he preaches in the Gospels. And if Jesus was using the Septuagint, it means he was using the Deuterocanonical books. So Jesus would have studied wisdom. Jesus would have studied Sirach. Jesus would have studied First and Second Maccabees and all these. So that's one of the other things the church says. Well, look, Je- these were Jesus's scriptures. So right. anyway, lots more we can say about that. Some of our Protestant friends took it the other way, though, and, and I think Luther misunderstood sort of the parameters of what the canon meant, and he ended up throwing them out, not just kind of putting them aside, but but thinking that they're actually yeah, something worse than they are. But again, that, that, that aside a little bit, um, the authorship of wisdom is, is usually attributed to Solomon. Um, some of the ancient canons talk about it being Solomon's friends who put this together, but basically it falls into this genre of literature that talks against idolatry and speaks about this idea of wisdom being a skill. And the reason this is kind of important, um, when the Septuagint was created, when the, um, as, as the tradition goes, the 70 elders went up from Jerusalem to Alexandria in Egypt to translate the Old Testament, which was then just the Bible, into Greek, they actually translated other texts while they were there. And that's actually what gave us the Septuagint. But one of the themes, you can actually see this theme of um, a Jewish author in a pagan society. That actually comes out in this whole book, which actually fits that context really well, of trying to to live this faithful life. So talks about the the ways of wisdom, the ways of foolishness, you know, choose the the wise way or the foolish way, all this imper- um not personification, (laughs) impernation, personification of wisdom being like almost a person who the church fathers look back and they're like, oh my gosh, this is foreshadowing of Jesus who will take form. But, but a lot of it is basically saying there is a skill, a chokmah in Hebrew into looking out at the world and being able to see the designs and the machinations of God, see how he is at work. And creation itself shows this to us. And it takes some skill to be able to look at your world and find out where God is moving. Right. Right. That's kind of the first half of the book. The second half of the book is showing how God has worked, not just in creation, but how God works in history, right? And so it recounts salvation history and shows, okay, so now that we've sort of tried to develop the skill of seeing God at work in the world, here's how that's happened in the past, right? And so where we kind of are thrown in is a reflection on the Passover, which is actually really significant. I think it does fit. Um, And so it's giving this reflection. The night of the Passover was known beforehand to our forefathers. So in other words, they were warned. Something big was coming. They learned to read the signs of the times, to hear the voice of God through Moses and through the signs of what was happening in their world, to know that something was coming. And they said that with sure knowledge of the oaths in which they put their faith, they swore to God that they were going to do this thing. They might have courage. Your people awaited the salvation of the just and the destruction of their foes. 
For when you punished our adversaries, in this you glorified those you had summoned. For in secret, the holy children of God were offering uh, of the good we're offering sacrifice and putting into effect with one accord the divine institution. Basically, this is saying, hey, do you guys remember the Passover story? During the Passover, remember that night? And this is really important that you actually, if you're a Jew reading this, there's a whole um, there's a whole series of images that are going to be invoked in your mind. And it's, it's so funny. I mean, wisdom can say, hey, the night of the Passover. It can say those, what, the night of the Passover. Five words, right? You can say the night of the Passover and this entire tapestry of images is evoked in your mind just right. like just like i could say to you um may the force be with you and now all of a sudden just saying those words i bet for all of our listeners this whole tapestry of images is evoked in their minds and they see darth vader and ewoks and wookies and and you know <laughs> but you know what i mean like there's an we, we call them the andorians i'm sorry <laughs> my mistake they see jar jar bings and they might be unhappy about that but but you know what i mean like you can it, we have cultural things where you can say five words and all of a sudden this massive narrative is called to mind which is what's happening here but we're so far removed from it it's not doing the same thing for us like when i make a star wars reference so when it says the night of the passover they're thinking oh the night of the passover okay that was when our forefathers they were gathered together they were told to eat the meal standing up with their loins girded their belts buckled around their 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 shirts and their tunics and their robes being ready to make a run for it because what they had just done was a capital offense in Egypt. God had asked them, are you willing to make this ultimate sacrifice to trust me, to take a God of Egypt, which is what a lamb was? Will you take a God and will you slaughter that God in your household? And then will you take the evidence of the capital crime that you have just committed and smear it all over your doorposts and then eat the meal? Well, no, no, no. This is the thing is, this is an essential part I don't think that, w- that we think of very often. Okay. Um, they have to cook it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what happens when you cook something? It smells. The, the smell. smell evoke, yeah. So now everybody's like smelling lamb, yeah. and it's and I mean because yeah. when I cook hamburgers, when I cook brats, I can smell the them. The whole neighborhood here. Everybody everybody knows that you're like. So it's like, hold on, leg of lamb and the blood is on the door? They're like, where's that coming from? They're like, I guess it's coming from there. Which, if you can imagine the courage that it would actually take to do that, which, I mean, the, the uh, I don't want to, I don't want to despiritualize this, but the devotion that's being shown in the act of the Passover, it's not just this rote trust that God is going to do this thing. I mean, it is completely putting themselves on the line of saying, okay, we're eating our meal with our loins girded and our belts buckled, literally ready to make a run for it because either one of two things are going to happen. Either God's going to come and save us or they're going to come to kill us and put us to death because of what we've done. And we've got either way, we got to run. we got to be ready to go. Which, I mean, again, the, the trust that that would take. And that's what uh, wisdom is getting at. That's the courage that they had. That's the oath in which they put their trust. They're like, yeah, I'm going to do this unthinkable thing that is defying all logic and all law and all comfort that I've actually experienced in Egypt. My, my, my home is, is comfy here. But I'm going to do this thing that actually puts me as an enemy of the state because I'm trusting that there is something even better than what I have. So, yeah, let, let's go. Let's do it. Let's gird our loins. Let's put your sneakers on and get ready to make a run for it because something's happening and I don't know what. But that, that, that's what's being evoked here, which I think is an important narrative for what's going to come later on. Does yep. that make sense? Yep. Okay. So that, that's our background for wisdom. I don't really have much more to say about it than that. Nope. Oh, I- except, to say, except to say that one of the things wisdom does subtly point to 
it says in the last lines, for in secret, because they tried to do it as secretly as they could, even though there were smells wafting from their kitchen and evidence on their doorposts. But nevertheless, in secret, the holy children of the good were offering this sacrifice, this lamb, and putting into effect, which that's a really important line. They were putting into effect with one accord, the divine institution. And the divine institution that this line is pointing to in Old Testament wisdom is the Eucharist itself. So wisdom is foreshadowing and foretelling this moment. It's looking backwards to this moment of the sacrifice of the lamb. It is saying in this present moment, we are looking forward to the future, to this divine institution that will be perpetual. So it's speaking about the Eucharist, even though it doesn't know it's speaking about the Eucharist. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Maybe, maybe, Maybe it does, but probably the human author didn't. Yeah, I mean, but then you say divine institution and you go, whoa. Well, for I mean, us in the Christian ear, we're like, oh, that's the Eucharist. I know what you're talking about. I, I, I find it, this is one of my favorite things to discover in scripture is the moments where the people who are faithful to God make evident this the powerful prefigurements of Jesus Christ and the sacramental life of which we get to enjoy. I, th- I think it's what St. Paul means when he says, you've been given to know the full mystery of Christ. Like, like you, all you have to do is look right before you, and it's all there, that the, that we've made sense of nature, history, and mystery. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Which the, is exactly what wisdom is. Right. History and mystery. Yeah. Is that what you just said? I said nature, history, and mystery. Nature, history, and mystery. No, even better. I mean, yeah, that is that is a nutshell of the Book of Wisdom. Yeah, and oh, that's good. I like that. Yeah, I like that baby. I like that baby, <laughs> which gets us to respond. Psalm thirty-three. Yeah, I always think it's it's just just it's important. Like the other day, I I said a mass and I said I said it alone, which is illicit, but you should always have a server. But um. I, uh, <coughs> for the homily, I, I won't just, tell anybody. I actually just looked at all of the stained glass windows in this church mm. and I just let them respond to the readings. Mm. And it was this really powerful thing. Like, what if this was actually a response to the first reading? What if this song that was singing it was, was actually a, a moment of preaching about the first reading? This one? Yeah. I think it is. That's what I'm saying. But, but not only in the sense of like, in the spiritual sense, but liturgically as well. So Psalm 33, the context of Psalm 33 was that it was one of the liturgical psalms that was sung by the Levites during sacrifice. So it actually, I mean, literally historically, that's actually the use of this psalm. So it is giving response. I mean, the Levitical priesthood later on would sing. You can you can almost imagine a choir of Levites singing Psalm 33. Blessed the people the Lord has chosen to be his home. Yes, they were all bait. They were all they all had bass. <laughs> and yeah, they were kind of kind of Russian. They were a little. <laughs> yes. All of your accents are degenerate to Russian. No, Indian actually. But I actually. Not true. <laughs> I've known you long enough to know that they all become Russian. Duh. But but so it is even in the Jewish liturgy a response to that sacri- to that divine institution that is still being foreshadowed as they're sacrificing the lambs in the temple, recalling what God had done in the past, but also looking forward to the future to what God will yet do. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. 
Yeah, I don't so have much more to say than that. M- me neither. Okay, let's go to the second reading. But 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 the response itself. Sorry, just want to put to find a point on it. <laughs> I thought you didn't have anything else to well, say. Well, but then I saw that. I mean, the blessed the people <laughs> the Lord has chosen to be His own. Who are the people the Lord has chosen to be His own? Well, it, it is reflecting, like you said, it's giving commentary on those people back in Egypt in the Exodus, the ones who had the not that they're more special than anybody else, but the ones who had the courage. To say, yeah, no, this makes no logical sense, and I'm, I'm totally throwing myself under the bus if I'm wrong about this, but I'm going to do it. But isn't that what every covenant is? Exactly right. I mean, exactly a, a, right. a covenant is where you say, I'm actually going to take upon both the blessings and the curses of this particular uh, binding of myself into family. That I cannot quite see yet. Right. Or many of which I can't see yet. Right. And, and many of which I can see, which <laughs> I don't know which one's harder always. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So Hebrews Faith is a realization is what is hoped for and evidence of things not seen because of it the ancients were well attested Which again is still giving commentary on our first reading Right which it, the first reading itself is a commentary on Exodus. Because the, the, it's, the faith is a realization of what is hoped for. So here are these people who are actually implementing the divine institution, but yeah. have no idea that the actions that they're doing are pointing towards the most exalted reality that will exist ever, right. period, the Eucharistic, the Eucharistic right. species. Right. To say the right. Lamb of God and his full sacrifice, that this would somehow prefigure that this God that God created all things, became man, suffered, died, rose again, and then gave us his flesh to eat. I mean, like, this is absolutely like, how, there's no way you could see that. And But yeah. still we live out of that now. Right. We still actually have this powerful faith of, of realization that when we live our lives in accord with holiness, which is like, what's just so nice to desire that it's the evidence of the things not seen. The evidence that I'm, I'm kind of struggling with that line. The evidence of things not seen. So, f- what do you think that means? Faith. Okay. So, when uh, evidence suggests em- empiricism, right? Yeah, it's it's a witness. Yeah. Okay. I w- think of the. Last, I, be- I believe it. I just want to hear your thought. Talk, think talk of the last really holy person you you met. Father Can Peter Mosso. Right. Okay. <laughs> Anybody else? <laughs> uh, I. Uh, I. You're you're catching me off guard. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I ask you that there also. Like, li- literally, friends who are listening, think of the last really significant holy encounter that you had. I I remember. Um, this is this is cool. Scott Hahn, I still think is like I've been watching him become holier as his life has gone mm-hmm. on. And, he, and um and I remember he came up here to give a lecture, and there was a moment where he came around and he talked to each one of the staff in this individual way, mm. and people kept on crying. Really? Because, because, like, this literally, before I came here, because he, literally, in encountering him, there was mm. something that he would speak so directly, mm. and and I just remember seeing him, and in the encounter with him, there was something that was so potently demonstrating the life of Christ in for me, mm. and for the people around me that that his faith all of a sudden became an evidence of the things that I'm hoping for, like. Like, okay. Okay. Like so. So like faith. Right. When when you encounter somebody right. who's like really going for it. When I was at, at sister's profession, when she laid down her life entirely, mm. literally, literally laid it down in the sanctuary, yeah. and 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 so that she could be raised up with Christ. It was almost like here's the evidence of who Christ really is. Here's the evidence of yeah okay it, 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 yeah it, okay I, it, I, it, I it see isn't, what you're saying it, it isn't Christ but it is Christ yeah, but but it is yeah absolutely right, right. and so so that's what I'm saying is like faith yeah. is this realization who we can't see 
Right. But we can see these people who are enacting what enacting is all about. It, out of this yeah, right. profound level of faith. Thank you. I mean, I've heard it's one of those lines you've heard it a million times. Right. But today I was like, what does that really mean, though? Like, I get faith. I get what it's saying. But, but it's, I think that yeah, it's, that, if, thank if, you. If you interiorize <clears throat> it, and, 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 and I am an island of faith as, 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 um, the Protestant temptation can can happen to where it's just just me and Jesus. Yeah. No faith. When yeah, I actually right. look and I encounter the faithful moment, yeah. I'm like, whoa! That's why we love saints, because we say, here's somebody who's faithful, and I'm like, I really need some courage to be able to live it out. When I smell the barbecue from next door, I'm a lot more willing to to slaughter the lamb. You know, that's a funny thing that you say that. I was trying to think of a way to work something into the podcast today that just didn't really make sense, but. And th- this is going to be a cop-out answer for a lot of people who have asked me a very specific question. Okay. But, and, and, well, I'll, I'll caveat it with that. But um, a lot of you over the, the months and I guess the years too, but a lot of you have written to us, written to me specifically, asking, like, what books do you read? Like, how can we kind of go further and deeper into the stuff that you guys do? And, you know, what, what resources do you use? And what are the books and what commentaries do you turn to? Like, what, what should I have? And I get that question a lot. Right. And I mean, you know, I have some of my go-tos. Like, I have my favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. But, but at the same time, I mean, what we give you, I, I can't, there's no way in my brain to separate what we tried to give you in the podcast from the people who have given it to us. Right. I can't separate the way that I teach from Tim Gray and Tom Smith and Wei and Wan and you know the, the people who have taught me to teach that didn't just hand me books but walked with me and listened to my teaching and criticized me and you know helped me along. And so I, I always get a little bit frustrated and guilty when people say, well, what books can you give me that I can kind of do this? And I mean, nobody's called to do what we do. I mean, people are called to do their own thing. But it's just hard for me because I, you can't separate the passing down of faith. This is the problem right, of... Right, absolutely. <clears throat> I had a good friend who, um, who has since left the church, unfortunately, because of a lot of hurt. But he told me once he thinks that the most dangerous moment in the history of the church was when theology left primarily the monasteries where it was shrouded in prayer and moved primarily to the academy, to the universities. And he said that's actually what started the downfall of modern theological thought, was when theology stopped being a spiritual practice and started just being purely an academic process. Right. He's like, there's something very dangerous about that. So there's something I think very dangerous, not very dangerous, but somewhat dangerous about just saying, well, just read this commentary, read these books, and then you can kind of gain all this knowledge. Because true theology is really not supposed to be done outside of a discipleship. And this, and that's what yeah. this is saying. That's what you're saying. Right. It's the evidence. It's evidenced in the lives of it. That's what this reading is actually going on to say. Oh, take Abraham. Take Sarah. It goes on what we skip in this reading of all these other people. Look at this. All of these are evidences. All of these are people who evidence the things that are not seen. Right. And they are our theology. Study them. Right. Study the lives of the saints. Look at them. Watch them. Read the scriptures too. I mean, all of it together, but it's a whole tapestry. Absolutely. And that, that's why that, what's really why this podcast is about Scott and I studying the scriptures together. Right. Because exactly right. there are so many things that happen yeah. that Scott <clears throat> and I never plan. There's no way for us to actually plan. Oh, uh, yeah. We Basically, plan. We, yeah. We, we come and we study and we encounter the scriptures and we come together out of and an encounter. Yeah. But then in that encounter, it is so much more for both of us. And right. we walk away and, we, and right. when we stop the podcast, we go, whoa. 
that was beautiful. I right. mean, like, right. so if, if, if somebody really wants to study the scriptures and like, what books do you read? Um, and there are books. I mean, that's right. not to say, like, oh, you're up, well, up a well, creek. what I would say is, is, is study the scriptures. That's yeah. the book that's that you study primarily, yep. together. Yeah, literally. That's true. Go do Lexio Divina. Take the time. Yeah. Read it slowly. Get an inter uh, yeah. t- an interlinear, yeah. an yeah, interlinear. Just yeah. like say like okay, what are, and a, and a Greek dictionary mm-hmm. and like and look and then just say like oh, slow down and in- let the word encounter right. you and you encounter the word and totally. then bring that to another person and talk about it. And I will yep. tell you, that it's it's in that that both Scott and I were transformed. Absolutely. Um, and that's how we were trained. That's I mean that's absolutely. This is this is uh, this is our little um, this is our little way havarim. to havarim, our a little way to study the scriptures. But but that it can have a massive influence, and you do that over time, and and you just keep coming back, and you say, whoa, this right. is special. Right. We do it in the context of the liturgy because right. how beautiful and helpful is it? Because that's what we're all doing. We are have we have a pattern of study already built into our lives. It's also the primary home of scripture. I mean, the church is always taught that yes we uh, we obviously are encouraged to read scripture on our own in private devotion but the most privileged place for the scriptures is in the liturgy right so we're putting i mean we're doing this in the context of the liturgy because it is the most appropriate home for the scriptures as right. well and it's, it's lived and it makes li- your job easier, right? Well, and it's a lived life because that's yeah. the other thing is that because it's it's in the natural rhythm of all of us as Catholics that it's a lived life because that, that's what really God is doing is He's showing here's Abraham, um, the, the, in the the author of the Hebrews is saying here's Abraham mm-hmm. and and he had to had to live his life in an encounter with me and remain faithful through all of this. Look at the witness. In a way that he couldn't see. In the way but look that, at how he did it. Right. And look at how crazy that he pointed towards yeah. who Jesus Christ is. Which it, it, it's it's funny even reading the second reading and the first reading together with the psalmist com, uh, commentary. commentary in between them, they're really telling the same story. Yes. Totally different context, completely different circumstances. Yes. But like here's a group of people that was asked to do this crazy thing for the Lord that they hadn't seen yet. Right. And they did it. Here's this other guy who was asked to do this crazy thing for the Lord that he hadn't seen yet, and he did it. But it's the same story, and it's showing that this is what wisdom is getting at, right? Right. Through learning to read creation and history, you begin to see the consistency with how God works. Right. And you're like, oh, it's kind of the same thing. Because I'm not Abraham. I'm so far removed from the time of the Exodus and Moses. But I can see the patterns that God has consistently used. Right. So if I can get that, that's the evidence, right? Right. And 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 so it finishes as, as this. It says, and he received Isaac back as a symbol. A symbol, yeah. What is a symbol? It's a something that not, doesn't <coughs> just point Two to metal itself. metal things that you clash together. Um, it's what happens when you try to do very skillful things without love. Your symbol? Clashing. Oh, clanging symbol. Uh, yeah, a clanging gong, clashing symbol. Yeah. No, <laughs> he received Isaac back as a symbol. A symbol is something that points not only to itself, but another thing. Yeah. And so what is that? Not th- only to its. That's important because sometimes we take symbol as meaning just pointing to another thing. Right. But it points to itself and another thing. Absolutely. That's really important here because Isaac is also about Isaac. And he's about Jesus. Right. But God doesn't dehumanize Isaac just to use him as a teaching tool about Jesus. Right. There's something to him yes right and that's that's actually the craziest parts of uh, he isaac is an end in himself yes but when done in faith becomes voluminous in glory becomes an evidence and, for things not seen right yeah that's good that's which is just powerful so okay 
Yeah, so then that gets us into the El, uh, the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> I didn't know what language you were. I didn't. I didn't either. Yeah, I just for the best that you kept a, it. Just like I think I'm going to swerve from that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well played. Yeah. All right, Luke 12. Um, couple things about this. If you put, uh, I I struggle with this a little bit, and then I, let me say this, I I I don't. I did a little bit of digging on the parable that Jesus tells. Talk to me, dig. And I, but here's my caveat that I have to give to you because I've, I've maybe there's lots of warnings own, today. You, yeah, that's that's right <clears throat> though. Lots of warnings. But maybe this is my own pride. But I finished studying what I was able to study on this parable, and I felt really close to this like mind blowing insight. But not quite. And I actually felt a lot like um, like the blind guy in Mark. Remember who, who was who, like, who needed I the two stages trees. of healing? Yeah. He's like, well, I see I men, see but they look like trees. of green. <laughs> exactly. I felt like Red that. roses, too. You're not doing a very good Louis Armstrong. <laughs> I see them bloom. Oh, man. Oh, me and you. Dude, give my hand. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. All right. Um... I can do my 1920s radio voice and Louis Armstrong. That's all I got. <laughs> Dude, you killed it. Um, what the heck was I talking about? Oh, but I, I did feel like I like I see men, but they look like trees. Like I see something, but it's blurry. Mm, Does that make sense? Yeah. And I actually think there's a pedagogy built into the reading that actually makes that real. <coughs> so what are you... Okay. What do you wh- I don't what, know yet. What's your outline? I don't know, but l- I want to talk about the parable because I think this is one of the most... <laughs> ignored or skipped over parables and i think there's actually a profound amount of depth in this parable and actually even when i first read this when i first started studying this because well, i, I kind of joked over the parable and right. went to what happens afterwards because I, I always just think of the guy who is worthy of a severe beating but only gets beaten lightly yeah, i mean literally that's I, where i, I went i always like, oh, get tri- i always get tripped up on the beatings because yeah. i'm like the beatings will continue until morale improves <laughs> i know i know that's where i went but i don't want to talk about the beatings because i don't Maybe you have something to say about the beatings, I've got but no, I don't know what to do with them. No, no, I don't know. I, I don't know what to do with all of this. And maybe I do once I say this. Okay, so so here we are. The context is is key, though. So Luke twelve, we're not exactly picking up where last week's left off, but we're really, really close. Okay. And the context is basically the the, the broader context is that Jesus is kind of being attacked and trying to be tripped up by the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're trying to trap him and and destroy him, right? And it's a scary situation. <laughs> and it's in that context that Jesus right before this does the whole like, you know, birds of the air. No, that's not that. But it, it's uh, the the Lord cares for the birds and cares for the flowers. And if he right. cares for them, you know, how much more will he care for you? The, that whole thing. Basically, don't be afraid. Like there's many things to fear. And he's saying that it's not just this generic, hey, don't be afraid. He's saying it as the Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders are literally trying to destroy him and kill him. And in that context, he's like, but don't be afraid. And they're like, but Jesus, they're totally trying to throw you under the bus and get you killed. And he's like, don't, that's the context he says, don't be afraid and look at the lilies of the field. I mean, which again, we make in this to this abstract, like, don't be afraid. Everything's cool. But it's different when you find out that it's in context of of what's going on. That's going on. And then we got a reading from last week where this young man is ticked off about his inheritance and his brother, his brother and the inheritance and thing, which is a great example of someone being freaked out unnecessarily. He's being he's afraid of loss of his inheritance. He's afraid of his financial loss. He's afraid of all these things. And Jesus is just like, it's cool, right? But all of it is in this context of being not afraid. So 
Then we get to our reading this week, and he says, he, Jesus said to his disciples, do not be afraid any longer. In other words, you've been afraid for a long time. And actually, the disciples spent a good deal of the Gospels being afraid. Right. He says, don't be afraid anymore. I know you, but it presumes that I know you're afraid. Right. I know you have been afraid. I know you probably will be afraid again. I know you're afraid. It's cool. And it's kind of Jesus saying to all of us, like, it's not, it's not this pie in the sky, like, never be afraid anymore. Like, I know you're afraid. It's like a father who's like, I know you're freaked out, but it's going to be okay. You right. know what I mean? Yep. Calm. Calm down. It's okay. Don't be afraid any longer, little flock. For your, flo- your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. So sell your belongings, give alms. In other words, be free. Feel free. Because remember, he just finished talking to this guy about his inheritance that he's freaking out about. He's like, don't worry about the inheritance. Sell the stuff. Get rid of it if you want to. Give alms, or if you were, if you were called to that. Provide money bags for yourselves that don't wear out. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven that no thief can reach or moth destroy. For your treasure is where your, there will your heart also be. Again, I think he's referring back to this guy freaking out about his inheritance. Right. That's where his treasure is, and his heart is exactly there because his heart is freaking out. And he's a little bit so, greedy. And he's a little bit greedy. And he's freaked out about it because it, he's greedy because he's afraid of loss. And then he's not going to be happy. I mean, why why am I greedy? It's because I'm going to say I'm not going to have enough. Because I might lose something. I might lose something. And, yes. I, and, and if I lose something, then I'm not what – then yes. what's going to happen? I'm not going to get what is needed, which but, is but, happiness and love and good things. But and, you hit it exactly, though. It's, it's actually the an- – it's not the antithesis. It's the flip side of exactly what we've been saying in these readings. What happens if this guy loses his inheritance? Uh, okay. We don't know. We don't know. It's an unknown. Right. He's being unfaithful for the sake of an unknown. Oh. What are the previous readings talking about? Be faithful even though it's still kind of an unknown. Mm. We don't know what's going to come on the other side, in other words. Right. I mean, either way, if you cling to all of your possessions, you don't know how that's going to turn out for you. If you try to rid yourself and free yourself and be faithful and follow Jesus alone, you don't exactly know what's going to be on the other side of that. We can right. trust right. and we can see the evidence through yes. salvation history, but the problem is the same on both sides. Yes. What happens if I lose my inheritance? And his fear is the unknown of it. Yes. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where my food's going to come from, from right. tomorrow. I don't know what am I going to do. And that's, that's freaky. So he gives this parable, right? So gird your loins and light your lamps. And as soon as he said, gird your loins, what is being evoked in the Jewish mind? The, we- oh, oh uh, the Passover. The, the Passover feast, right? Gird your loins. I mean, that, that is instantly evoking this real, it's again, like saying, may the force be with you. It's a very familiar, well-heard, powerful, quick couple, uh, quick phrase, right? Right. That is loaded with salvation history. Gird your loins. Oh, it's like the Passover. I, mm. I see where you're going. You're going somewhere with this, Jesus. Right. Gird your loins, light your lamps. Okay. And lighting your lamps actually starts to evoke another parable that Jesus gives in Matthew. Remember of the, the women, the virgins who are waiting after the wedding feast with their lamps lit? Yep. This is actually the parallel to that, the, the, the parallel to that parable. Parallel um, to the parable. Which there's more we can say about that. But but listen to this parable. This I went to my... Speaking of books, my my one of my fa- I've talked about him a million times. My favorite biblical theologian, Ken Bailey, right? Um, who spent so many years. I've talked about Ken Bailey a million times on this yep. podcast, but he spent so much of his years and his life living in the Middle East among these tribal people and trying to understand these cultures. And he gave me some stuff, and I don't know exactly how to disseminate it yet. But, okay. But he gave me some stuff, and he's the one that pointed out. He's like everybody overlooks this parable. And they jump ahead to what comes next. But this parable would have been one of the most shocking, um, profound parables that Jesus gives. 
which is, which is a big deal. So gird your loins, light your lamps. We're already thinking in terms of the Passover. Be like servants, doulos, like slaves, right? Well, well, gosh, hold on. I mean, even back up, light okay. your lamps. What, what's the process of the wedding feast is the ones who have the lamps go out to meet the Lord Correct. to bring him back into town. So they're going halfway out because they hear the cry so that they can actually bring them back in, which is but eschatological. that's not what these people are doing. Right. But this is also eschatological. Right. I mean, your mind's thinking in the right direction. Okay, okay. let's keep going. Maybe I shouldn't have brought up that parable because they are related, but... Right, okay, anyway. that's okay. Um, so grid your loins, light your lamps, and lighting... It's nighttime, and lighting a oil lamp in the dark, from what I'm told, is actually a pretty tricky thing to do. Okay. So it's actually not... not a, but the girding the loins... Um, yeah, we got the Passover. Keep going, keep going, keep moving. Well, the girding the loins... I, I want to say something about the girding the loins, though, because the only three... There could be more. I made a note of this. There's only a couple of times, a handful of times, where you see girding loins show up in the Bible, right? So um, people in the Middle East would wear these long, you know, flowing garments, right? Like kind of what you wear for mass. Right. But they don't have belts around them. I mean, if you picture someone in Middle Eastern it's garb. Breezy. It's breezy because it's hot, right? The only time you'd put a belt around you is usually when you either had to run or when you're going out to work. Because the belt would be to kind of, the robes would, it's like your priestly vestments, right? They go almost to the ground. So to put a belt around them implied that you were doing work of some sort, right? Mm. And the only times that you actually see that, so in the Passover, they're told to do this. Um, Elijah belts himself when he was running uh, before Ahab's chariot. So Elijah, in, in the heat of the battle, does this. Jeremiah was told to do this when he took up his ministry. And here again in the Gospels, it happens again. But those are kind of the only times that I'm familiar with that actually talks about girding up your garments with the belt. Okay. Because it's time to go, in other yes. words, which is what the Passover is all about. So you, listeners, you who are freaked out, you who are afraid of loss, you who do not know what's coming next, gird your loins. And again, it's like saying, put on your work boots or put on your running shoes, Right. That's it. you're about to do something. That's the maybe modern equivalent. Put on, lace up your work boots, because it's time to go. And okay. then go have a meal. You're like, that's a little bit weird. Yeah. Um, be late servants who are awaiting their master's return from a wedding. So the master is at a wedding, ready to open immediately when he comes and he knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds vigilant on his arrival. We've heard the themes of that parable before. Amen. I say to you, he will gird himself. Gird himself again because he's got to work. But what's he wearing? Well, let's finish the parable really quickly, and then we we got we got to deal with this. Amen. I say to you, he will gird himself, have them recline at table, and proceed to wait on them. And should he come in the second or the third watch and find them prepared in this way, blessed are those servants. Be sure of this: if the master of the house had known the hour when the thief was coming, he wouldn't have let his house be broken into. So you shall also be prepared. Okay. So where is the master during this parable? He's at the wedding feast. He's at a wedding feast. Okay. Um, there's a different. I was looking up some different translations. And um, there is, this is important to me. It doesn't say, in some translations, the Greek kind of gives room for both, but it doesn't necessarily say that they're waiting or that the master is just returning. So the word for waiting can also be translated as expecting, which is a little bit different, right? Waiting is more passive. Expecting is more active. Right. So expecting is different than just kind of passively waiting for something. They're not just waiting. They're expectant which I think is a really important difference. Gregoruntias, which yep. is on the alert. On the alert, which is even better, right? Right. So that's different. It changes the tone. They're not just kind of waiting around. Um, the other thing is that what the master's doing, 
when he, he doesn't just return from the wedding, it says he withdraws from the wedding, which doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but it's actually really important because if it really says withdraws, then it means that he's leaving the wedding banquet before the wedding is over, right? Yeah. If he's at a wedding banquet and the servants are just kind of waiting for him to return, they're just waiting for the wedding banquet to be over and he's coming home. But that's not what this parable is saying. They're expectant for him. They're on the alert. And he doesn't just leave when it's over. He withdraws early. Mm. He, he makes, there's another translation I saw, which I forget what it was, but it, it's, it's, um, yeah, he, he's, he's like sneaking out in a certain sense, right? Before it's over. He's breaking, li- oh, that's what it was. Um, Joseph Fitzmaier says he break he breaks loose from the wedding celebrations, which is just interesting. Again, it's a different tone to it, right? right. So he breaks loose, and then when he comes, what does he do? <laughs> what does the master do when he comes? Um, um, I, let me get back to the scriptures. I'm uh, I'm trying to find the because it's kind of important. I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I, that's very important. I no, mean, no. This next part too. Yeah, yeah. The master so comes, returns, and he, he comes back and knocks. What is he knocking on? The door of the hearts. No, literally. Literally, uh, the door of the town. No. The door of the house. Whose house? Your house. Whose house? His house. His own house. His house. When you come home, do you knock? No. On your own door? No, no. I I just You just come in because it's your house. I I was even I was staying at the seminary out in Connecticut and uh and I and I got in at like one thirty and I had the code. They gave me the code already. But I mean like this thing is I'm a guest and I didn't even knock. Yeah. It's weird, right? Right. He came home to his own home and he knocked. Why would you knock? Hmm. I think you'd knock to find out if people are expecting. Are you up? Are you ready? Are you waiting? He's trying to evoke a response from them. Are right. you awake? Are you aware? So he comes, he not he withdraws. He sneaks out of the wedding, which means that the servants should not be expecting him yet. Mm. Think about it, right? He's at a wedding banquet. He's at this big celebration. It's not over yet. They shouldn't be expecting him for a while. Yet he leaves early. And then he comes and he knocks to see if they are expectant and on alert. And they mm. are, right? Which means less about they're just kind of waiting for something that will naturally happen and more about the disposition of their hearts. They are expectant servants, right? Mm. That's sort of who they are. That's what they're doing. And he comes, and if he finds that he finds them vigilant on his arrival, and amen, I say to you, he will gird himself. Now, that's where it gets interesting again. What is he wearing? A wedding garment. He's wearing a wedding garment. He just came from a wedding, right? He's wearing the fancy Fancies. wedding garment. And what does he do with his fancy wedding garment? He girds. He girds. He puts a belt around it so he can work. So it's basically like the servants are watching him. He girds his wedding garment. They're like, is he going to like scrub the floor now? Like that. that's so it's weird. Like, it's, it's like putting on a, a, a coveralls over your suit. Over your tux, right? Yeah. Or putting on an apron over your tux. Right. And you're like, what? what are you doing here, man? And what does he do? He had them what? recline at table and Ken Bailey didn't talk about this but I'm actually most struck by that line he had them recline at table which is the opposite of what um, which is the opposite of uh, I don't know what meal have we already talked about in these readings oh which is the Passover, the Passover. what do they do at the Passover eating standing they eat standing they're girding loins they're ready to run and now this master tells his servants to what recline at table it's the opposite of the Passover posture no, relax, sit, recline at the table, and he proceeds to wait on them. 
So here's here's what's weird about here's the other thing that's weird about this. It, it's weird just like on yeah, a there's base, a lot of there's, there's a, a lot, lot of things that I'm that I did not even <clears throat> I, I I water skied over right. So on a baseline cultural level, it's weird to have servants. And the way the servants, the doulos, are described, they're probably the lowest members of like the, the household structure. Right. Like they're not the children. They're not like the paid servants. They're, they're, the, they're the slaves, basically. They're the lowest of the lows. And so there's kind of a baseline weirdness to the master coming and serving the slaves. That's just weird. That doesn't happen. That's not culturally... A thing. You right. don't see that. But not only does he wait on them, he what, what has he essentially done? What, what, here's what you don't see in the parable, and I'm reading in between the lines a little bit. But if they're, if he's off at a wedding banquet, what... I'm trying to form this into a question that you're not going to be able to answer <laughs> because I like rhetorical questions. But he comes home and he serves them food, right? Well, where'd this food come from? I mean, he's out of the banquet, which means the servants haven't prepared. It's not like they're like, let's make him some food for a midnight snack when he comes home. He's off at a banquet. He's already gotten his dinner. We didn't make any food. There's no, nothing cooking in the kitchen for him. Right. So he comes in, and what does he do? He starts. He has some reclined at table and starts to serve them. But you don't get the sense that he's off shuffling around the kitchen making some food. No, did he bring... So he probably brought food from the wedding feast. So he brought the food from the wedding banquet. The master brings the food with him from the wedding banquet. Now, you think, even if he's like this generous master, he could have been like, oh, man, my poor servant's back home. Like, this is a beautiful spread. Like, this is really good. I'm going to send one of these waiters, one of these servants back home. Hey, can you, can you bring a tray of food to my guys who are, you know, working back home? That'd be real nice. But he doesn't do that. He himself leaves the wedding banquet, takes a tray of food or whatever he does, and he himself takes it to them, readily prepared, readily made, and has them sit down and recline at table, girds his loins so that he can serve them the choicest food from the banquet. Which says so striking to me that this is the Eucharist. Because the Mm. master comes from the wedding banquet, bringing the already prepared, already there food the glorious food of the wedding banquet itself, right? right? But he himself becomes a slave in order to give them the wedding banquet food, which is so Mm. passion, Christological revelation. And it doesn't say he's the bridegroom, but if you kind of put the pieces together with the rest of scripture, and I know it's a parable, but if you kind of, you know, do a little bit more math, it's actually, what if it's the bridegroom leaving his own wedding to come to his slaves to bring the choicest banquet to serve them with the food of the wedding feast? Which is presuming that the rest of the household is with him at the banquet. Presuming that, because, sure. Because yeah. the, only the slaves would be the ones that were left behind. Presumably only the slaves are the ones that are left behind. And so this is where this is where it's like um, because it's all about the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you if you just bail on everything. And so it's pointing together to say uh, we are meant to have faith that what we are going to that we're actually going to be participants right. in in what this kind of right. lengthy salvation history because we are right. still called to have faith towards this invitation and this participation of the banquet in this like radical which we, we have not seen yet or experienced yet right and so we are trying to <coughs> store up for ourselves all of these things because we're afraid that we're really not a part of it right are we really a part of like are we really in the kingdom of heaven am i really a special one of jesus and am in I human not? terms we're not I mean, in human terms, like, no, the slaves don't go to the banquet. Of course not. No, only in members a human of the household. Sense, 
But he's like, "Uh uh-uh, that's not the way my household works. Right. My household, and it's not just I'm going to send him some leftovers from the party. I will go and I will attend to them. I will wait on them. I will, my last thought on this, and then we can can close because we're pretty late. Um, But my last thought is when do you see Jesus actually doing something very similar to this? The Last Supper. You see it at the Last Supper. Because he puts, he, 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 Gets down on his knees. He gets their up feet. off of the table, the Eucharistic table, oh. which is the wedding banquet, and he girds himself. And then and he, he does the slave the work. And he does the slave work. And you begin to put the pieces together, and you're like, oh, holy cow. So, and this is where I even leave it. Even now, I'm like, I see something here, but it's still blurry to oh, me. Oh, no, no. Like, it's still like, blurry. Like, there's something so profoundly right. glorious in this. But a little blurry. But a little blurry right? that, that, that you go, yeah, that makes so much sense. But but what else is, like, there, like there's this, there's this, I mean, we're seeing the Eucharist, we're seeing the wedding feast, we're seeing the invitation and the slave, but there is another level to this of which maybe, is slightly obscure. And maybe that's by design, because again, we haven't received it yet. We're, right, this we is have to inspire for us to our look faith. forward to. Right. This is this is not the evidence. This is a parable about the future. But, so we use the evidence of salvation history in the past to look forward to something we have not fully seen yet well yeah this is the thing is that the servant who's waiting for their master to come home is a little bit crazy you know what i'm (laughs) saying because they're like dude because you know your master's a little crazy and they probably know like he might slip out early and he because he does stuff like that and you never know what you're gonna get with him he's a little wily he's a little wily and and we love him for that isn't he isn't he this kind of special wily person and right and so that's why you're ready Right, because it shouldn't be out of the fear. Oh, I'm terrified of my master. No, it's no, because I know my master's a little bit wily, and he's got. And he might show up at any second, and, and he might do something weird. Yeah, he's free and yes. alive. Yes, and, right. And we know that he loves. Like there's a, there's yeah. like an anticipation of, if you're the slave and anticipating him to come back, how much love do you have to just yeah. say like, oh, I'm excited for him to come back. Right, it's, right. It's exactly. always better when he's around. Yeah. And I love that Peter says, Lord, is this parable meant for us or for everybody? Oh. And then the Lord gives a cryptic answer and he gets into the beating and it gets a little weird. But, <laughs> but I love Peter's question because well, well, Jesus doesn't give him a quite straight answer. Well, yes. And but, I love that. And, and, I, and I look and I say, okay, it's, it's about infidelity of waiting for the master mm. of the house, the, the groom. Why would you be unfaithful? It's because, yeah. you, because it's a question of the goodness. It's a question of the goodness of the master. Will the will the yes. master actually provide for my happiness? Even though, right. guess what? I'm still a slave. I've still got the work to do. Right. I mean, I got to scrub the tub, you know. But it's okay because he's actually shown me my worth and my dignity by him taking on the role of a slave, right? Which makes my own servitude okay mm. because I know that he thinks it worthy that he would take it on himself. So all of a sudden, my dignity has been elevated, right? Because he's taken it on. And this is actually where, like, uh, there's this amorphous thing, and I know that we've got it finished, and you probably have to edit some stuff. Um, <laughs> but, but, but I just think about what is the, f- the the most profound faith when we encounter it in another yes. is so powerful. But what G- what does Jesus said? He says, "I will actually show myself in the poor." Yeah, that even in the midst of those those who are just mm. totally seemingly defunct. Mm. And, and rejected and lost, you can have faith that I am present there. And how powerful and potent is it when, when we actually encounter the poor with that kind of heart? It's powerful and potent. Powerful.
powerful boat. Ooh, all right, keep digging on this, friends, because there's so much more. Mm. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, don't fake the fun. Never. Bye-bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T, and you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.